Lord, we come before you acknowledging our insufficiency and our inability to come to you on our own. We are people that need Christ. And as we saw even this morning, earlier today, our own human wisdom is flawed, and so we need the wisdom of Christ. I pray that you would help us today, that we would hear your word, that you would give grace to me as um, one preaching the word today, that it would be clear, that it would be accurate, that it would be truthful, that it would be faithful to Scripture and faithful to the hope that you offer to us. In Christ's name, amen. We are concluding our series on depression today, and I hope that it's been uh, an encouragement and a blessing and a help. Um, We're wrapping it up with a message today on how to help others who are going through depression. And of course, there still is application enough here for how you can if you're, if you're going through this yourself, can look to many of these things. And we've seen in the past several weeks ways in which you could help others also. And so there's a lot of overlap in what has been happening here. The verse that I want to highlight today, the verse that will kind of be in the forefront, uh, and then we'll look at many others. But the main one is going to be First Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. And it says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. And as we interact with others and we discover that they're going through different situations, maybe this person is struggling with this particular sin and they need to be called to repentance. Someone else may simply be discouraged and they need encouragement. And so we are to apply the truth of Scripture to each and every individual situation, including the one uh, in front of us. If you have not heard the previous messages on depression, I will remind us once again that this is part of a whole series And so part of what you'll hear today is building upon that which we've already talked about. And so I would encourage you to go back, if you're able to, to get the broader context to it. I'll give you a little bit of the context, and that is by looking at our outline that we have explored. We had a brief word on psychology, a biblical definition of depression, the many occasions of depression, the cause of depression, how to identify depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression, the cure to depression, and finally today, how to counsel those who are depressed. We have a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right into it. The first thing we're going to do when we uh, are engaging others in counseling or trying to encourage them, when we're counseling someone who is depressed, the first thing we want to do is give hope. Um, This 
should be somewhat obvious because our whole study in depression has centered around this word hope. And so just to remind you of where we have been, uh, we said that the definition of depression is sorrow without hope. We said that the cause was misplaced hope. I'm putting my hope in something that wasn't designed to give me hope. Then we said that the symptom is hopelessness or despair. And then we said that the cure was hope in God. And so the very first thing that we want to talk about, if we're going to talk about helping someone, it's going to be around this word that has been uh, in the forefront throughout this whole study, and that is the word hope. Um, Remember that we said that last week the object of the hope is God. In fact, we said that sometimes we can even become distracted by hoping in our hope in God. And we said even that is not a worthy object of our hope. Our hope should be God alone. Because if I'm hoping in my hope in God, then that means that I'm hoping in my own ability to find hope in God. And sometimes I waver in that, right? And so God himself is the only object of our hope. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a hope-filled passage for the person who's depressed. This is a passage that we should have maybe in our arsenal of verses to encourage those who are going through something, to encourage them that, first of all, what they're going through is not unique to them. That alone by itself is oftentimes very encouraging to someone because what is one of the lies of depression, that you're the only one going through this? And so to hear that, that other people have gone through that, and then also to hear that God is faithful, and that he will provide the way of escape is something that's encouraging and gives hope. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We're to give this hope to those struggling through this. We also have seen in the past Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And then, of course, one should not miss the significance in the hope provided in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This verse is actually going to be featured in our problem of evil study. Because while we may not know why we're taking this specific road, we know that God is one who's working this out for his glory and our good. And so what I would encourage us to do, first of all, is to help the depressed person recognize that their suffering is not meaningless. God has a purpose for it. He will use it for his glory and their good. And I would encourage us that very early on in the conversation, and this is whether this is a formal counseling situation or whether this is just you giving encouragement to a friend, that is 
that we are first to give hope. Secondly, and, I, and I, let me just clarify on this. I probably would put give hope first. The rest of these, there's not necessarily a certain order to them, um, so I haven't thought of it in order of uh, priority or anything like that. Some of these are all going on at the same time kind of a thing, so um, that's, uh, don't, don't take anything by the order of this. Number two is listen first. Um, we're going to look at two biblical passages. Number one is Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Someone gives an answer before they hear, it's their folly and shame. And of course, all of us know James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We need to, as we're talking with someone who's going through depression, patiently listen, mainly because we're just not God. We, we don't know everything that's going on. We don't know the exact nature of what they're going through. Uh, this is, if you are talking to someone in maybe a slightly more formal setting, this should be just about mostly the only thing that you do the first time that you meet with someone, the, and giving hope. You really need to get the lay of the land before you begin to speak. Um, this also helps us to understand the exact nature of the problem. It helps us to pinpoint in what ways are they not looking to God for hope, or, or, or maybe there's more to the problem. Maybe there's anxiety mixed in here and, and this and that. And it just helps us to understand so that we can help. And it also helps us to show that we do genuinely care for this person and that we're not just trying to rush through something. Any physician knows that you need to have a good grasp of the problem before you start treating a patient. A Christian who does not listen before speaking is like a doctor who performs surgeries before taking any tests. Uh, it could have disastrous results. And it still perplexes me. And, and I don't know if this is caused by social media or just whatever. It amazes me that whenever there is a big news event, everyone has an opinion on it within 15 seconds. And not only do they have an opinion on it, they are dogmatic about that opinion and cannot be wavered. And this oftentimes is happening before the facts are laid out. It's happening just based on gut, based on intuition, based on first reaction. And uh, I would encourage us that uh, when we see these kinds of big news events coming out, we should be patient, and listen first before we begin using our keyboard to just throw everything out there in the world. Uh, sometimes it takes years to come to solid conclusions about various events because we just don't have all the information right away. So that should cause us to just pause and to be slow. Oftentimes, and this goes across the political aisle, Either way, 
um, people will take the same opinion of their favorite political commentator just because they stated it. Not because they heard all the situation, but just because this is what they say, so this is what I believe. We need to be cautious about this. Uh, listening first, again, has its benefits. It demonstrates, first of all, that you really care, and I hope that you really do care. Um, it shows that you don't want to just blow off what they have to say. And again, it helps you to tailor your counsel to the specific situation um, to know what the exact nature of, of, of it is. This kind of listening, if we're going to listen this way, is going to require us to behave in a certain way. And this behavior is demonstrated in our third point, which is this, demonstrate patience. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, again, the, the main verse that we're looking at here. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, and what are we supposed to do with everyone? Be patient with them all. Whatever the situation is, even if we are engaged in admonishing the idle, that requires patience. If we are encouraging the faint-hearted, that requires patience. If we're helping the weak, that requires patience. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, love is patient and kind. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3, 12 through 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Notice that these verses say that we are to be patient, but we're also to bear with one another, implying that it could be a little bit of a hardship sometimes. It could be potentially somewhat draining to us sometimes to have to bear with someone with patience. Oh, they're struggling with that again. It should not be our disposition. We should be patient with others and bear with them in their weakness, knowing that Christ has done the same for us. Change never happens, or maybe I should say rarely happens, as fast as we want it to. Probably if we were to stop and talk with each and every one of you today, we could hear stories of people, family, or friends that you are talking with, and you're saying they are just stubborn and they're not changing fast enough. Remember how patient the Lord has been with us. You have not changed as fast as you should, and yet the Lord has been patient, and that's a model for how we are to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ and long-suffering with them. That's number three. Number four, study the Word. The more you are in God's word, the better equipped you will be to help other people. It's just the, the, the plain fact. The more you know God's word and the more you can run to passages 
the better you'll be able to help others. And so we would go here to kind of the classic statement of inspiration in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 that says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Word of God is profitable, it makes us complete, and it equips us for every good work. Everything that we need is in Scripture. And so, your ability to help someone is going to directly correlate to how much Scripture you have accessible to you. If you're someone who is weak in Scripture, who doesn't know Scripture, then you're going to have less of an ability to help someone than if you know more Scripture. The Word is enough, and we must study it to help others. Now, there are... I I could give a whole series on just this point here because... We, would, we, could, we could go to each attribute of God and say, study this attribute, and it helps people who are depressed in this way. Study this attribute. And so we, we could give a list here of each of these things. We're not going to do that. We're going to really hit on kind of one main doctrine today that I think perhaps maybe in our current culture, will help us to help the person who's depressed. The doctrine that I would like to emphasize and highlight when it comes to helping someone through depression is the doctrine of our union with Christ. The doctrine of our union with Christ. And I want to go on a very small rabbit trail to explain why this is going to be particularly helpful for us. Because at first, the connection might not be readily apparent. What do you mean by the doctrine of union with Christ, and how is that going to help somebody? Um, I'm going to quote two individuals. Uh, One of these individuals is a social psychologist And the other was a psychiatrist who died back in 2012. And I want to use this, as I've really been using a lot of these quotations through this study, as kind of what Paul did on Mars Hill. Do you remember that conversation? And Paul said, as even some of your own poets have said, as even some of these people in the world have said, this particular thing, by God's common grace, is true. And so that's kind of the nature that I want to um, uh, quote these in here. Um, What we're going to be talking about here on this brief rabbit trail is that overcoming depression has to do a lot with your understanding of your identity. This word is thrown around a lot today. But identity has a big part in addressing depression. We might also call this idea of identity the theology of the self. What does the Bible say about me? And specifically, not just what does the Bible say about me as a sinner, but what does the Bible say happens to the Christian when they're regenerated? What do you become 
now that you are in Christ? And how does that theology of the self, how does that theology of your identity help the person who's going through depression or a million other things? Here's what we don't want to do. We do not want to define somebody by their depression. This is uh, something that AA is notorious for, right? I mean, kind of the classic statement is, hi, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic, right? I'm an alcoholic is a statement of identity. It's what I am. Um, And that has implications for how we live our lives. So here's our first quotation. This is from the book, The Calling of the American Mind. Um, This is our social psychologist. And remember, this book is not, the authors are not conservative, let alone Christian. But here's a fascinating statement that they say. Applying labels, and he's talking about you're depressed. I'm, I'm a depressed person or I'm an alcoholic. That's the label he's talking about. Applying labels to people can create what is called a looping effect. It can change the behavior of the person being labeled and become a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is part of why labeling is such a powerful cognitive distortion. If, and he uses our specific example of depression, if depression becomes part of your identity, you hear that? If it becomes part of your identity, then over time you'll develop corresponding schemas about yourself and your prospects. I'm no good and my future is hopeless. These schemas will make it harder for you to marshal the energy and focus to take on challenges that, if you were to master them, would weaken the grip of depression. So again, unbeliever is making this statement that if you begin to, if you begin to tell someone this is your identity, they begin to act as if that were their identity. Um, Your identity or the theology of yourself has a massive impact on how you address issues in your life. So that's the first one. The second quotation uh, comes out of a book called Idols for Destruction. And this is our psychiatrist, uh, Thomas Zaz. And we read this. Zaz shows how classifying people, again, giving them the labels, depression or whatever, changes them into the image that accords with the classifier's assumptions or his desires. In that way, classification or calling someone, you know, you're a depressed Christian or you're an alcoholic, classification is like a lever. It gives the one, it gives one a purchase on whatever it is one wants to move. To classify people psychiatrically, Zaz believes, is to establish control over them. To classify people by their culture, as the humanitarians do, is by extension to establish control over whole populations. Okay. My point in these two quotations is to say that identity is important. And again, these are not believers that are coming to these conclusions. To classify a person or identify them by a certain thing is to influence their action. We're going to look in just a minute on what the biblical data is on our identity and how that affects depression. First, though, I want to look at one more thing. Dr. Alan Francis, the chair overseeing the DSM-IV, which you know is kind of all things uh, psychological, 
wrote this book, wrote a book called Saving Normal, where he's critical of the DSM-5. So you have DSM-4, and now DSM-5 comes out. And if you're going to be classified as having some sort of a mental disorder, you're going probably going to get that out of the DSM-5. The big difference between DSM-4 and DSM-5 is that DSM-5 broadens the categories or the classifications so that more people than before could be said to have this particular disorder. It really just broadens the scope of each of these categories. Um, so Alan Francis, who chaired DSM-4, has come out as being really against DSM-5 because of this reason, and he's been sounding the alarm that this is a danger in our culture. In his book, Saving Normal, he gives an example of this, and he says that something that psychologists call social anxiety disorder has become so broad that people who are shy now are considered to have a mental illness. And he's, he's, saying this is, he's saying this is a dangerous thing. Again, not someone who's a believer, but someone who's saying if you broaden these classifications out and you broaden these categories and you begin to put an identity on somebody, someone who 100 years ago we would have said, well, they're just shy, now this person has social anxiety disorder. He's saying that's a problem. And we would say as Christians, that's a problem. Because they're deriving their identity from how they've been diagnosed. Um, what Francis does is he calls this tendency... Um, actually, here, let me give the quote here for you first. And he ties us in with Big Pharma and all this stuff, and I'm not getting into all this stuff. I'm just giving you the quote for the sake of... Um, the identity thing here. He says, Pharma's brilliance was to envision a world where even slightly excessive shyness could be magically transformed into a mental illness that would require a drug fix. Again, this is the chair for DSM-4 that's saying this and saying DSM-5 is dangerous because of these reasons. He calls this tendency to expand these categories uh, diagnostic inflation. You're inflating all these diagnostic categories. Okay, if all of that was just too much rabbit trail, my point is that the way you identify yourself has massive implications for how you live your life out. If you identify yourself as someone who has social anxiety disorder, what does that now become? could become an excuse potentially. Well, I just have social anxiety disorder, so I'm not going to do this or do that or whatever it might be. The same is true for depression and a thousand other issues. So the answer to this, and where I've kind of been going with this, is to teach the doctrine of union with Christ. Because the doctrine of union with Christ is a doctrine about the Christian's identity. So let me give you the go-to passage on Christian identity, and that is Romans chapter 6. I would encourage you to read the, whole, the first half of Romans 6. However, I'm going to give you a couple verses from Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 5 says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
What is this doctrine? This is the doctrine of union with Christ. You are, if you are a believer, in Christ. You are a Christian. Romans 6.5 is a statement about identity. Now, I want to show you in verses 11 through 12 the connection between identity and behavior. If this is what you are, then go and do the things that people do who are like that. Okay? Romans 6, 11 through 12. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This statement in Romans 6, 11 through 12 should never be divorced from the preceding verses because these verses that come first are theological statements about the nature of what it means to be a Christian. And because of that reality, because you are in Christ, therefore go and behave. And now identity is wrapped in with the Christian behavior. So here's some things that it would not be appropriate to say. It would not be appropriate to say, I am a depressed Christian, or I am an anxious Christian, or I am an alcoholic Christian, or I am, and this one's being promoted today big time, is I am a gay Christian. I am a Christian. That is what identifies you. You are, you are no longer what you used to be. You are who you are in Christ. That alone should be incredibly freeing. And of course, as we've observed here, even these secular psychologists and psychiatrists are seeing the importance of identity and how it shapes behavior. And of course, the Christian understands this based on union with Christ. The testimony of Scripture is this. You are united with Christ. You are identified with him. You have died to the old self. Therefore, go and sin no more. And there actually is something of grace in that. It actually gives you the ability to go on and act no more like you used to act. This, of course, then is our fourth point. We are to study Scripture, specifically the doctrine of union with Christ and the theology of the self. So an application from here is to go home and look at the first half of Romans 6 and study it, study it, study it, study it, study it. What does this have to do with who I am in Christ and how I behave? Uh, And again, we could go on about all the attributes of God um, because each and every attribute of God is going to have something to say uh, about this. This brings us to our next point, how to counsel those who are depressed by showing compassion and mercy. We are not to be condescending and arrogant, but merciful and compassionate. Jesus gives us the model in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And then, of course, the Lord himself as he deals with Job, James five eleven. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. And finally, we have a direct command from Scripture to be compassionate. Colossians 3.12, put on as the Lord's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. We saw this verse earlier for patience, but we also see it for compassionate hearts. 
are many ways to do this, obviously. One of the biggest ways to do this is through hospitality, your home, through uh, interacting with people in the community, um, showing compassion and mercy means that there may be times where it is appropriate to simply just weep with the person to demonstrate that compassion. Keep in mind also with showing compassion and mercy, you and I, we can't be the answer man or the answer woman. That's not being compassionate and merciful. That's not looking to Christ. That's looking to our own wisdom. And so part of this compassion and mercy and patience and all these things is simply pointing your finger at the Bible. The answers are there. I don't, I don't know how to help you through this particular situation, but I know a God who does. To suffer through depression is to experience pain, heartache, and hardship. Do not minimize the suffering that they may experience. Don't write off their suffering as meaningless. Don't be unkind in your words. Richard Sibbs, in his famous work, The Bruised Reed and Smoking Flax, says this, Misery should be a lodestone, which is an old word for magnet or something that draws. Misery should be a lodestone of mercy, not a footstool for pride to trample on. Someone's going through misery? That, that should attract mercy, not someone who's going to trample over that person in carelessness. This should temper our language, which is the next point. Avoid trite statements. We want to avoid shallow, unbiblical statements and exchange them for more rigorous biblical language. Things like, oh, just look on the bright side, are probably mostly unhelpful. <laughs> this would also mean not giving promises that you can't keep. I promise you'll get over this. How do you know? Don't make promises that you can't keep. Telling people to just get over it is probably not very helpful either. And even if some of these statements might have some truth in them, consider the manner in which you share the statements. Galatians, 6 chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in what? A spirit of gentleness. So our correction to others is to be gentle in nature, not hostile in nature. All right, this brings us to our next point. And before I put this up on the screen here, I have to give a little bit of a preface here, okay? Several weeks ago, I told you that I think that there were going to be two statements I was going to make in this series on depression that were going to be the top of the list on potentially the most offensive things that I was going to say. And I'm going to say number two right now, okay? I actually don't think it's... I, I, actually, think, I actually think that we would all probably agree on it, Okay? Uh, after it's explained, but it might sound a little bit weird when I say it at first here. So I want you to just be patient for a moment, okay? Um, and I really do believe, and I, I don't think that this is controversial at all, and I think, I think, anyone who walks away disagreeing with this particular point 
is probably a disagreement in semantics, in definition. How are we defining our terms? I, I really think that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so if you do walk away disagreeing, please let me clarify this for you, okay? But I'm going to do the best that I can to explain this because I think this is a very significant, significant, significant point in helping the person who's going through depression. And so I'm just going to give it to you. We'll get over the shock value, and then we'll go through it, okay? So how do we counsel someone going through depression? Show sympathy, not empathy. Show sympathy not empathy. What do you mean by this? Definitions first, okay? Wait till you hear the definitions and the explanation. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines empathy as this. The action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another, of either the past or present without having the feelings, thoughts, or experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner, okay? So empathy, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is vicariously experiencing the feelings and the thoughts and the experience of somebody else, okay? Now we're going to look at dictionary.com. And they say this, empathy is the psychological identification with or vicarious experiencing, and here's their list, of the feelings, thoughts, and they give attitudes of another. So whatever that person's experience, feeling, thought, attitude is about a situation, I'm going to vicariously experience all of those same exact things myself. This is what empathy is. Now, I want to contrast this with sympathy, and I'm going to give you the uh, same two dictionaries here on sympathy. Sympathy is uh, an affinity, association, or relationship between persons or things wherein whatever affects one similarly affects the other. Do you kind of see a little bit of a difference here? Okay, dictionary.com now on sympathy. The fact or power of sharing the feelings of another, especially in sorrow or trouble. You see how empathy goes a little bit further than sympathy? Um, empathy is stronger than sympathy in that it seeks to adopt the total experience as your own. Sympathy tries to understand the feelings of the depressed person. Empathy, on the other hand, seeks to make their feelings, thoughts, experiences, and attitude my own. So you're fully entering into their world and experiencing their truth as if it were your truth, if I can say their truth kind of a thing. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What if they are thinking incorrectly? about the situation. If we have adopted their thinking, if we have adopted their attitude, if we have adopted their mindset about this situation, then we have no ability to offer any corrective if it's needed because we've totally adopted their attitude as my attitude. Does that make sense? What if their thinking is wrong? What if their attitude is wrong? If you adopt their attitude, then you have no ability to correct their attitude if it needs correcting. 
This is where empathy goes off the rails. Now, this particular point on sympathy and empathy is related to a previous point that we made in a previous message on depression um, about we said that uh, one of the symptoms of depression is misrepresenting reality. Do you remember when we talked about that? We said that sometimes people who are depressed can misrepresent reality, and we paraphrased Richard Baxter who said this, depression clouds reason so that a man's judgment is corrupted and cannot be trusted. A man who is troubled in his mind perceives things not as they are but as his passion represents them, and thus his judgment is perverted and usually false. So when we looked at that message, or when we looked at that topic in that message, we gave some examples of the spouse who says, he never shows me that he loves me. She's always rude to me, these always and never statements. We said, this is not good. And then we looked at one psychologist's list of what is called cognitive distortions. And again, this is even as some of your own poets have said, and we see, I'm going to give you a couple of them here. They gave mind reading as what they call a cognitive distortion. You assume you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. He thinks I'm a loser is their example. Negative filtering. You focus almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positives. Look at all the people who don't like me. Overgeneralizing. You perceive a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. This generally happens to me. I seem to fail at a lot of things. Dichotomous thinking. You view events or people in all or nothing terms. I get rejected by everyone. It was a complete waste of time. Uh, what if, I think this is a big one actually uh, for a lot of us, you keep asking questions of what if something happens and you fail to be satisfied with any answers. Yeah, but what if I get anxious or what if I can't catch my breath or what if I get sick or what if, whatever, on and on. Emotional reasoning, you let your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. So this is just a list and there were a lot more in that list. But what's the point? The point is that because depressed people have a tendency to misrepresent reality, we need to be careful how far we descend down into that mindset. Hopefully we can agree on that. If we go too far, we'll just agree with them and everything. So empathy is going to be more inclined to say this. Wow, I can't believe she didn't invite you to the party. She must be a jerk. I understand why you're so depressed. Okay? That's something that empathy would say because I've adopted all of your mindset as my own. Sympathy, on the other hand, would say about that same situation something like this. Wow, that must be really hard that she didn't invite you to her party. I can understand why you're so down about it, but maybe it was a mistake. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Have you tried reaching out to her and asking her a question about it? You see the difference in those two responses? One of them descends all the way down into their thinking and just, if they think that person's a jerk, then I think that person's a jerk. And I totally, completely, fully empathize with all of their feelings and all of their thinking and all of their actions. And that does actually kind of feel good a little bit if you're on the receiving end of that, right? Have you ever experienced that? Like temporarily there's a little rush there, like... Yeah, they're on my team kind of thing. Sympathy, on the other hand, I'm sorry that you're going through this. This is hard. I can understand why that would be hard. But it stops short of going all the way down the pit 
and says, have you considered what the Bible says here? Are you sure you're thinking correctly about this? That's the difference that we're going for between sympathy and empathy. Um, Jesus demonstrates sympathy, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has gone through these temptations, but he didn't sin. And so now he is sympathizing with our weaknesses. Jesus doesn't say, I understand why you just, yeah, go ahead and keep sinning. He sympathizes. He understands. I know that it's hard that you're going through this, but here's truth. That's the difference that we're going for here. And keep in mind as well that we are required to speak truth so that if someone is descending into this negative mindset, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in what? In love. Again, this is the, the manner in which we do it, but we're to speak the truth in love. We want to be close enough to the person to be able to sympathize with them. So Romans 12, uh, 15 is an example of sympathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is an example of what it means to be sympathetic as a Christian. We don't want to adopt their mindset so that we fail to give them truth. We cannot affirm if someone who's hurting is sinning. We can't affirm the sin. We must call hurting people to know and embrace the truth. I will just say um, with this topic here, um, if you're interested, um, Joe Rigney, the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary, as well as Andy Nacelli has written a little bit on this topic, um, and I would be happy to point you in, in the direction for that. I think it's an important distinction. Now, at the end of the day, if it's an issue of defining terms differently, sometimes we use empathy and sympathy as synonyms, and I understand that. Um, but what I'm particularly going after here, however you're defining these terms, is to simply keep yourself well-grounded enough in Scripture to be able to speak truth and not totally affirm everything that someone is going through. Because that can oftentimes be one of the most harmful things to do to someone, is just to affirm everything. We've got to pull them back to reality and pull them back to think truth, think Scripture, think Bible. Um, All right, well, this brings us to the end. What's the application today? The application is all seven of those things that we just said. That's the application. Go do all of those things. You're helping someone who's depressed or struggling. Use those seven things to be an encouragement to them, to point them to the hope of Christ, and to um, help them think truth through whatever situation they're going through. And even apply it to your own hearts, if that's something that that you're struggling with as well. Um, I mentioned to you, and I'll just mention this as we're closing up here, um, two weeks from today, I would like to have a question and answer time on the topic of depression. This can include anything that we've covered in these, I think, seven messages it is. Um, It can include anything that I've not included in there. Um, And uh, we'd just like to have a time, and I'll probably address a couple of other things as well, um, more informally. But 
uh, want to be an encouragement to all of us. And as I've mentioned before, um, our door is always open. We're happy to encourage you wherever we can. And most importantly of all, true hope comes from Christ. If you don't know Christ today, repent and believe on him. Thank you, Lord, for your continued and ongoing mercy and kindness and compassion and faithfulness in spite of all that we are and everything that we do. We would acknowledge that we are people who can be tempted to grow discouraged. I recognize, and we recognize, that this is a trial that is unique in many ways. It's unique in that oftentimes it feels relentless. It feels harsh. And some people in your providence are more plagued with this than others. Why, we don't know. And yet we do know that you are a faithful God. We know that we can find hope in you. And I pray that you would help equip us as a church to better minister to those who may be struggling through this issue of depression. Let us be those who find our identity in Christ, knowing that you have redeemed, that you are a God who saves, and that you help us to put off the old and put on the new. And it also reminds us of the fact that we long for glorification, where there will be no more tears, there will be no more crying, there will be no more sadness or depression or sorrow or heartache or any of those things. And we will have joy complete for all of eternity. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us find hope in you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.